Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. I, it was the first magazine of time I'd ever gotten. I, it was while the newspaper I was working on was on strike. I desperately needed the money. Uh, I was sent out to Los Angeles to do a story on customized cars. These were, a lot of them were done at that time. Teenagers, particularly in California, would take an ordinary automobile and turn it into something absolutely um, different. And I was, they put me up in the Beverly Wiltshire Hotel, which was a very expensive hotel. And I went around doing my reporting chores. And when I finally had done all the reporting, I absolutely froze with the panic. I'd never written a magazine article before. Uh, and I, when I said it was worse than you said, it was when, um, at the last minute, the editor of Esquire called me up and said, look, we've got about $10,000 worth of, of uh, color prints made. They're on the, ready for the press. Uh, and we don't have any stories. So if you can't do it, uh, just type up your notes, and we'll give them to a competent writer and get it done. So with a, you know, with a humiliated but feeling very guilty because of the money at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, I sat down one night and started typing up my notes. And then the notes, you know, I said, uh, the first place I saw customized cars was at 18 Fair in um, North Hollywood, California. And that's the way, well, I, t- I ended up typing all night, uh, 49... Uh, triple space pages, and I took the heavy heart, took this memo over to Esquire in, in the morning, and then I went home to bed. I'd been working all night. Um, and about four o'clock that afternoon, I got a call informing me they were to knock off. At the salutation was Dear Byron, that was the editor's name. Uh, they were going to run the, um, the rest of it as it, as it was. Um, and that became a story called The Candy Colored Tangerine Flake Streamlined Baby. Um, and what I ended, had ended up doing was finding my own voice because I was writing to just one person. His name was Byron Dobell. Was, I, you know, so many people have a real style when they are writing friends. And I know I get letters all the time from people who are wonderful writers, but you tell the same person to go write a magazine article or even a term paper for school, and that person will freeze up and get very formal uh, and so on. This, but this was a, a very happy accident for me. But when you were typing during that night, feeling that you'd failed, did you think, there's something here, this is working? By about 2 or 3 in the morning, I began to say, hey, this isn't all that bad. Uh, I, was in, I was encouraged, but it was, it was full of uh, very sort of sloppy phrasing, very little which was removed <laughs> when it appeared in, in book form. But uh, the main thing was I had found a... I had found a, a voice. Uh, but I wasn't curious halfway through. And the things that we, we now see in that voice, and people write essays and make programs about the new journalism, the looseness, which presumably came from writing what you thought were notes at the beginning, but also the, the physicality of it, the way in which things sound, trying to get a word to approximate to that. Um, that's really what you hit on there, isn't it? And also, I suppose, the subjectivity. There's much more subjective than journalism would normally have been permitted that, to be. Well, that one piece was very subjective because it was, it was me looking at uh, these strange automobiles and the people who made them. Uh, as time went by, I began to feel that using the first person uh, is often a mistake. Um, when you use the first person in writing uh, in nonfiction... 
just as you would in, in fiction, you become a character. And if you don't, if this I who is telling the story doesn't become uh, an interesting character, uh, it, it gets in the way. The technique gets in the way. So it, my use of the first person became rarer and rarer and rarer, and I hardly ever use it now until I am, unless I am really, for one reason or another, a, a part of the, uh, of the story. I solved one problem easily, writing with the first person. You, um, you have a point of view, uh, but sometimes that point of view is not near enough the center of the action to, be, to, to really be any good. But you did, in fact, increasingly become a character, and so that people reading your pieces had a clear sense of you, and indeed what you were wearing, they, w- they would know that, and how you looked. How conscious was that style decision? Well... <laughs> I did my best to become a character, I'll tell you. Uh, the, you know, the white suit thing, which I, which I still enjoy, um, happened accidentally. But then I saw I was onto a good thing, and I, st- I stuck with it. Uh, I had just come to work for the New York Herald Tribune as a reporter uh, for very little money. I had only, in those days, reporters were expected to uh, uh, wear jackets and neckties, I mean, male reporters. Um, Today, if they wear them, people think there's something wrong. <laughs> it must be, it must be, the, uh, must be the, the owner. Um, uh, but then uh, I had only one suit, uh, and I had, the summer was coming on. I'd just come to New York. It's hot in New York in the summer. So I, went, I, I bought a white suit, which where I came from, Richmond, Virginia, was not very unusual in the summertime. But the material was too hot. Uh, it was a silk tweed. It was too heavy. I couldn't wear it in the summer. So I started wearing it in the winter. I didn't have enough suit so that I could be choosy about it. Um, and I found out that this created the most incredible resentment in people. Uh, it, was a, it was a perfectly conventionally cut suit, but it was white. And uh, suddenly getting dressed in the morning became fun. Uh, now, don't ask me why that was fun. I don't have Dr. Freud's nightline uh, number, but uh, I did, in, I did in, in enjoy it. And also I found out that uh, I didn't need a personality. Uh, <laughs> I had the white suit, and, uh, and people were, I mean, I could say absolutely nothing, and people would say, what an interesting, uh, uh, interesting guy I was. Uh, so as time went by, um, white suit became a drug on the market, and John Travolta did Saturday Night Fever, that movie, and then Robert Redford did um, Gatsby, uh, Gatsby. And, and the white suits were turning up in every shopping mall in America, but I knew I could outlast them. These things, are, these, things are, these things are good for about six or seven hours. Uh, and then you have to put on another one, you know. So. And you also have to find a cleaner who will put it, what's called, first in vat. Get one who will put a white suit in. It's a cleaning solution. It's used for lots of clothes. You have to get yours put in first, otherwise they, it gets... Well, you don't want to hear all this. Okay? No. But the thing that's <coughs> always intriguing me about that, we're going to talk later, obviously, about research in terms of the novels, but... Your research has taken you to some pretty grim places. I mean, jail houses, cells, freezer houses, and so on. But I often have this subliminal image of you in a white suit amid all these, <laughs> these criminals and cops and so on. But, but would you do that? Or? Well, many of those situations, I would not, I, I would not wear a, uh, a white suit, but I always wear a suit and tie. Uh, even when doing the book on the... Uh, Ken Kesey and the Mary Pranks of the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, uh, which is essentially about the hippies. Um, I found it was wise to wear a, uh, a suit and tie. I became the 
the, sort of the village information gatherer. I wasn't pretending to fit in anywhere. Uh, and I think after a while they had a, a, a kind of inverted respect. Uh, for me. One, of the, one of the, it was a, a woman who was part of the Ken Kesey's group. Everyone called her Doris DeLay. I'm not, I'm not what the, why. But, um, and uh, she came up to me one day and, and she said, you know, I was wearing my uh, uh, suit and tie every day. And she said, uh, said, you know, you got on the weirdest outfit around here. And, and weird was a great compliment in, uh, <laughs> among Ken Kesey and the Murray Prices. What interests me is that journalists are often told that the reporters should be inconspicuous, that they shouldn't merge with their surroundings. But in fact, you, you've always been a very conspicuous reporter. Well, I, for example, when I was covering the Bronx to, uh, to write the Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, at that time, the, the, the South Bronx, where I was going, was the um, well, the most notorious slum in, in New York City. Uh, and I figured out pretty quickly that I was going to be better off in a uh, suit and tie uh, than trying to dress down and to fit in, because there was no way in the world I was going to fit in the South Bronx anyway. And with a, with a, a jacket and uh, a tie, I might be mistaken for a lawyer. And uh, lawyers are valuable commodities in the South Bronx. You know, they, uh, they don't just sweep them aside. You know. In terms, uh, sticking with the new journalism for the moment before we go into the novels, in terms of your technique, if you read something now like the Radical Sheep piece, which we begin mm. inside Leonard Bernstein's head, basically, in the morning. So how does that work? You would interview the people and then pre- pre- produce a kind of interior monologue for them. Well, and yes, I mean, that's... This is what, probably the most controversial uh, technique in the, the new journalism. Um, there are four basic techniques that I can take off very rapidly. One is telling the story scene by scene, scene by scene construction rather than a historical narrative. The second is using as much dialogue as you possibly can get your hands on. Um, the third uh, is uh, what I call the not- notation of status details, what people wear, the furniture they have, the way they talk to their superiors, the way they talk to inferiors, all the things that indicate the rank you think you have. Uh, and, but the other is, is point of view. Um, this was a term that Henry James really created. The idea is that the scene that you write should be to- told through the eyes of one person. Uh, Dickens doesn't always do that, and uh, Zola didn't always do that by any means, or, uh, even Flaubert or Balzac. But, uh, it's, it, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful device. Um, and in nonfiction, um, I have often interviewed uh, the subject, and, and then if I think I really know thoroughly what that person was thinking at a given moment, I will write as in, the, in the third person, but as if I'm inside the head. Let's say Chuck Yeager uh, in The Right Stuff. He, he, got, he, he almost got killed flying a plane called the NF-104, a rocket airplane. Um, he went up, he broke the altitude record for an airplane at that time, 104,000 feet. Then he went into a flat spin, it's called, and he couldn't get out of it. And he finally had to bail out just near the ground, and, and this multi, multi-million dollar plane was crashed and destroyed. Um, in writing that, I could very easily, I, I well, let me put it this way, I interviewed him about what, what had happened. Uh, the aerodynamics of that whole event. And when it took him about three days to explain it to me, but when, it, uh, uh, when I finally got it, 
Uh, I wrote it as if I were, were in, as if the as if he were telling the story. You're inside of his head. Now this is controversial because uh, one can very legitimately bring the objection: um, How do you know that this person is telling you the truth? Uh, well, yet I think that's a judgment call, but I think it's at least worth using. Well, in the case of Leonard Bernstein and the Black Panthers, um, I began this piece. It was called Radical Chic, and it was about a party that Leonard Bernstein gave for the Black Panther Party in his 13-room duplex apartment on Park Avenue. Um, I began the piece with Leonard Bernstein awaking in the middle of the night. He suffered from insomnia. He wakes up about 2 or 3 in the morning, can't sleep. So he goes into his... Uh, his library, his den. He kind of paces around, and, as he often did when he couldn't sleep. Um, and suddenly he gets a vision. He, can, he sees himself um, going out on stage at Carnegie Hall. There's a symphony orchestra waiting. But instead of conducting the symphony, which he would ordinarily do, um, he has a guitar in his hand. And there's a chair on the stage, and he puts one foot up on the chair, and he starts playing a folk song. And then he turns to the audience, and he makes a passionate anti-war appeal. This is in the middle of the war in Vietnam. He makes this anti-war appeal. Audience is stunned with the drama of it all, and then he leaves. This is his vision. Then suddenly in the same vision, he sees what he calls the Negro by the piano, a black man in the curve of this big, uh, uh, one of those big grand pianos, rising up and saying to the audience, isn't this the most embarrassing thing you've ever seen in your life? Don't you feel like leaving uh, this man coming out with a guitar? Uh, and uh, making this anti-war appeal. And so he gave up on the idea, and he, he, he never did it. Well, people, that's the way I began the story. And everybody said, that is outrageous. You're pretending to be inside of the mind of Leonard Bernstein? On, well, it was his 48th birthday. I even had that in there. Um, well, this case was just pure luck. Uh, there was a coffee table book that had been done called The World of Leonard Bernstein. The kind of book you'd hardly pay any attention to normal course of events. It had been done by a good uh, friend of his, uh, and it was in it were the long uh, transcriptions of tape recordings of, with Leonard Bernstein. These were Leonard Bernstein's own... It, it, the details were taken straight from his tape-recorded uh, um, pages. I mean, I've, I've changed the word. It, uh, I told the story in the third person, but... Uh, uh, that was just dumb luck, but ordinarily it takes some doing to use this particular technique. And you mentioned there the amount of dialogue that would be in one mm-hmm. of these nonfiction pieces. That again is controversial because people say, "How can are they remembering it exactly? Were you using fictional mm-hmm. techniques? What would you do? W- were you using shorthand or then later tape recorders?" Or well, in the case of the right stuff, for example, uh, there's very little dialogue in it because I couldn't get it. Uh, Except you could get some of the dialogue in space flights, which has been recorded by NASA. Uh, but by and large, you, you can... Now, I would take somebody's word for it if they could remember the punchline of a conversation. Uh, and, you know, and then he told me uh, to buzz off, or whatever it might be. That I would take... I would say, yes, somebody could remember that. But nobody can, after two or three, or even overnight, I think, can remember a whole conversation. Uh, and I've never... You know, I've never uh, honest. I never made up a, uh, uh, a word. Uh, and to me, it was very important to, to get the, 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 the real dialogue. 
And when people talk now about the new journalism, they present it as being deliberately in opposition to traditional journalism. But were you thinking in those terms when you were writing this way? No. When I started um, doing this, there were two... I mean, I have to give credit where it's due. There were two writers uh, whose work I'd begun to envy. Uh, one was uh, Gay Talese, who was writing for the New York Times and for Esquire. And another was Jimmy Breslin, who was a columnist of my own newspaper, the uh, New York Herald Tribune. There was particularly a story by uh, Gay Talese that made me say, gee, something new is going on here. Uh, he did a piece for Esquire uh, entitled Joe Lewis at 50. And it was a portrait of this great boxing champion. He was now 50 years old, retired from the ring. Um, and the story begins with Joe Lewis flying from New York into Los Angeles, where he's met by his fourth wife. Um, and she says, Joe, you forgot your necktie. And he says, oh, honey, uh, I, I was up late uh, last night, and I'm, you know, I'm an old man now. I'm 50 years old. I just, I, I just forgot it. And she says, yeah, you're, uh, you're an old man when you get to Los Angeles. Says, but when you're in New York, you think you're 25 again. Uh, and you carry on just like you did when you were 25 years old. And you come out here, and I've got this old man I've got to take care of for the next couple of weeks. Uh, I couldn't believe that anybody could legitimately get this kind of dialogue. Uh, I assumed he made it up. Uh, well, I got to know Gay, and I asked him about this. And, of course, what he had actually done is he had gotten close enough to Joe Lewis to stay with him for days on, uh, on end, and he was there in on the plane with Joe Lewis when he got off the plane and hears this, has this conversation with his wife. Later in the same uh, magazine piece, uh, you're in the living room of Joe Lewis's third wife uh, who has remarried, and the, the new husband is in the room, and she's having a dinner party, and she has, after dinner, she insists on showing some movies of the Joe Lewis-Billy Kahn fight. That was a fight that Lewis nearly lost. He was behind on points in the 13th round, to this little-known challenger, Billy Kahn. Uh, and when Billy Kahn made the mistake of trying to slug it out with him, he thought he could knock Joe Lewis out. And Lewis tagged him one good right cross, and the, and the fight was over. Um, but as she shows, in, the, in this magazine piece, as she shows the movie, uh, she, the third wife, starts moving with Joe Lewis's punches. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then when he gets... Uh, uh, in the 13th round of that moment when Lewis knocked him out, she says, and this is where Billy Kahn is going to get his. He thought he could slug it out with Joe Lewis. And, and then when he knocks him out, he's on the screen, he knocks him out. She's like this. And at this point, for the first time in the entire piece, you hear the new husband say something. Uh, and the referee has just counted uh, Kahn out. And the new husband says... It was a slow count if I ever saw one. I'm sorry, I said, yeah, a slow count, yeah, slow count. Uh, as, if, uh, as if Billy Kahn really could have gotten up and won the, won, won the fight. Again, I said, how could anybody get this? Well, he, was, he somehow got him, worked his way into the, uh, the living room of the third wife and, and saw all this take place. So I said, this, this has enabled this man, least to write through, from the scene-by-scene construction, you know, the airport the third wife's living room, and so on. Brilliant stuff. And I was determined I was going to do, do a little, uh, do some of it. And it really, with me, it started, 
I wanted to do it. I never had done it. Started though with this um, this piece I wrote. These um, techniques you've talked about, <coughs> scene by scene construction, the amount of dialogue, point of view, they are essentially associated with the novel. Were you? It's tempting now to think, having read your novels, that you were edging towards fiction. Did you have any sense of that? Well, when I, when I was in uh, college, which is at Washington and Lee in, in the state of Virginia, um, I, like every, anyone else who had amb ambitions to write, assumed that an that ambitious writer aimed for the novel. Um, and many, many writers in the, in the U.S. had, had uh, treated the newspaper work as a sort of cup of coffee on the way to the final triumph, which would be the novel. Um, but when this, uh, when this new journalism, as it became called, I didn't give it that name, um, got going, this was something so fresh so original that it, it had an excitement for me all of its own, and I really put aside the notion of writing a novel, and I put it well, aside. And something which could lead to books, of course, as well, the new journalism. Yes, the, because it, you know, all of us were, uh, and particularly my, uh, me, were using these techniques, which are the, the key techniques of, of fiction, um, to make nonfiction as absorbing as, uh, as fiction. By absor you know, though it is though those four devices that historically have made the realistic novel uh, absorbing, starting with uh, uh, Pamela by Richardson. As I understand it, Pamela was published serially in the form of letters from this young woman who was working for this rich man who was always chasing her around the house trying to pop her into bed. Um, and people had never read anything this, with this kind of detailed realism before. Uh, and many, many people thought that these were real letters from a real woman. Uh, and I am told, I read rather, that in uh, the uh, town of Slough, which is, I guess, part of Greater London now, uh, when the climactic installment arrived, and Pamela has now compelled uh, the the rich man to ask her to marry him if he intends to ever get her horizontal. Um, the, the people in town went out into the town square and began ringing the church bells and celebrating, uh, thinking that this had just happened. And uh, um, that, was, that was how new the realistic novel was. Uh, when Defoe did Robinson Crusoe, it was passed off as real, a real journal from a real person who had been marooned on a, on a, on a desert island. Uh, this was this was brand new. Uh, this was this was brand new stuff, and it was those four devices that w that created the this ab absorbing uh, quality. I mean, you you can go back to in English literature or anybody's literature, and there's nothing quite like realism to uh, to grip uh, a person. Using those techniques, it's even a mediocre writer can make a reader cry. It make me cry anyway. Um, and Dickens knew how to do that to a fairly well. Uh, probably more tears were shed by reading Dickens uh, than uh, uh, any other routine way. Um, the any, anything, I think anything with that power uh, um, really you, must be yeah. used. But you, you could, you clearly could have written *Bonfire of the Vanities* based on the same research 
as a Tom Wolfe non-fiction book and it would have been bought and it would have sold in big quantities. So why this, the decision to write it as a novel? Well, the, originally I wanted to write a non-fiction novel about New York and it was going to have the name The Bonfire of the Vanities because I had uh, first heard that on an American Express bus tour of Florence, Italy. And we got to this Piazza della Signorina and the bus driver said, this is the, the place where the famous bonfires of the vanities were held. And then he described how these um, young religious zealots who were followers of the priest Savonarola in Florence, this is 1497, uh, began first asking people to get rid of their vain uh, possessions like uh, books by Boccaccio, uh, dresses with silver threads, wigs, and, put, and build a bonfire out in the square. Um, and there were two of these huge bonfires, and, and these, these young religious zealots finally would invade people's homes and, put, and take their finery out there and burn it. On the third bonfire, they really had enough of all this, and they literally burned Savonarola. He was immolated in the third bonfire. And I said, this is a fabulous title, but I didn't have anything to go with it. Um, <laughs> so I finally said, well, I'm going to write a... Uh, a uh, non-fiction novel about New York. And I also had in mind Thackeray's uh, uh, Vanity Fair. And I had the title, so... Uh, <clears throat> then, though, I had just... Uh, this wasn't long after I had written The Right Stuff, <clears throat> which was the first thing I'd ever written that gave me a little bit of a financial cushion so that I didn't have to immediately start writing more articles or something. Um, so I, just, I said to myself, you know, there are people who snipe at me saying that I'm going through all this new journalism as a complicated way to avoid the big test, which is the novel. So I said, well, if I'm ever going to try it, I'll do it now. I have a little bit of money. I don't want to end my career and then look back and say, gee, I wonder what would have happened if I ever wrote a novel. So I decided to make The Bond for Other Vanities a book of fiction. You're quite right, though. It could have been done. When I went to um, the party that Leonard Bernstein gave for the Black Panthers, um, it w- I intended for this to be a chapter in a non-fiction book called The Bonfire of the Vanities. But it was such a perfect set piece that the journalist in me took over, and uh, um, I, I wrote it right away. You talk about taking on the big test of the novel. I was struck looking over your fiction for this discussion that in Bonfire of the Vanities and in A Man in Full and in even Ambush at Fort Bragg, the audio book, the characters, they're rich and successful, and they, they risk losing it all. They risk being humiliated. Now, I accept that is a plot often used in fiction, but was there anything psychological in that to do with how much you were gambling, that you were gambling your reputation? I like that interpretation, but I, I, not consciously. But maybe that such things are unconscious. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but were you aware of it? I mean, it clearly was a gamble, wasn't it? It was a terrific gamble, uh, I mean, I was past the age, and long past the age, in which you should write your first novel. I was 49 years old when the Bonfire, when Bonfire, I'm sorry, when the right stuff was published, um, and I published other, a couple of other books in the meantime. But, but by the time I published the Bonfire of the Vanities, I was 57 years old. Um, so it was a big, uh, it, it was a big, a big risk. You know, originally I wrote. The Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, serially for a magazine, Rolling Stone, uh, very much in my mind, a la Dickens. 
Uh, it was the most harrowing experience of my writing career. Uh, after I, I wrote three chapters to begin, so I'd have a two in reserve in case I missed a deadline or something. Um, but the Jan Winner, the editor of Rolling Stone, decided that he should start with a bang, so he published all three in the first issue. <laughs> and uh, then I started gasping and uh, scrambling to try to get this done, and I was no longer wondering whether I was going to be like Dickens or anybody else. I was just trying to fill the hole uh, each, uh, each month. Well, in that first version, um, to make it easy on myself, I decided to make the central character, Sherman McCoy, uh, a writer. And that must have been one of the most boring characters in all of fiction, as I began to realize after a few ish, uh, installments. But I couldn't change him uh, at that point. That's the problem with writing serial. I mean, you have to really... I mean, I really understand just how good Dickens was, and Zola also wrote that way, and just how good they were. Um, because you can't... You know, in chapter six, I said to myself, I made a terrible mistake. If I'd only done this and that in chapter two, uh, <laughs> life would be so much easier. And, uh, but you can't go back. It's, you know, it's all out there in the road. And just take, we'll open it up to the audience in a moment, but taking what is probably the most famous sequence in Bonfire the Vanities when he's driving Sherman and he makes the mistake which leads to everything else. In terms of the research, you, you did that drive, presumably. I did. I went. Uh, I had met a uh, policeman who worked in the Bronx, and a detective, and I've gotten to know him pretty well. And so, I called him up one day and I said, I told him about the plot I wanted. I wanted to have this rich bond salesman and his girlfriend, not his wife, uh, in this Mercedes Roadster, and they're going to take a wrong turn into the Bronx, and um, they're going to be. Uh, I'd heard that cars were sometimes robbed on rampways. The, the assailants would, uh, would block the ramp and, person, and the car has to stop and when, they, when the people stop the car they seize the car or, or, or just rob the people. And I said do you know of any ramp where, any ramp where this has taken place? And he said I can show you 35 ramps. He, says, but, uh, he said I'll take you to, to one that's used a lot. Uh, and uh, so the two of us, I was with, the, uh, with this detective, but he was in plain clothes, had his own car, uh, and we uh, took the whole drive, got out of the car um, uh, on that particular ramp that was used and so forth and so on. Uh, and I found almost any time that I would go into a, um, a conceivably dangerous territory, I, I didn't do it... Uh, in a white suit and saying, here I am, let's... Uh, uh, I almost always found somebody who was at, at home in the territory. Well, I mean, that was the only time I was ever with a policeman, but other times there was a, a lawyer I, I knew who had defended a number of many, many uh, criminals in the Bronx, and he was known and apparently loved everywhere. Uh, and he took me to places at night. Uh, because, you know, the Bronx is like any other place. If you, if you somehow known there, if you're with somebody who's known, uh, the world isn't, isn't literally full of people who are trying to uh, rip your heart out, you know. So, um, I managed to cover the whole, um, uh, that whole, whole route, and the, the, what you read in the book is ex ex exactly where you, what, what could happen to you. 
And in terms of the writing, because there were people waiting there, and some of them said it to say, this is, just, this is good, but it's just his journalism. When you were writing it, did you think this has to be different? Did you do anything? Did it feel different? Well, I knew it had to be different in a way that I felt confident about, which is I had seen what was happening to the novel in the United States, and it was becoming more and more uh, anorexic. Uh, they were all vegetarians by now. You know, it was a, uh, people were taking... The, the thing to do when you came out of a university uh, creative writing program was to was to take some small situation out of your own life and, and look at it from every different psychological angle and bring in maybe one or two other people in the story. And, uh, and it was considered a violation of literary etiquette any longer to have a strong plot line. Uh, I mean, they would have they'd be absolutely aghast if Charles Dickens was born again and uh, started using some of these melodramatic plots. Uh, that would be considered such a breach of etiquette you couldn't be taken seriously. But... Um, I had written in 1973 in an article called The New Journalism um, that if the novel was to have a future in the United States, um, it would have to be a novel of detailed realism, um, something comparable to the naturalism of Emil Zola, uh, who went into area after area after area of French life, areas that he himself personally knew nothing about, um, and created these great works of, uh, of, of, of fiction. Because it seems to me that's the... You, know, you have to face up to the fact that movies and television um, have had a huge impact on the market that, uh, that fiction used to have. Um, but there are certain things that television and movies can't do. Uh, for example, it's very difficult in, in film or tape to uh, use these... Uh, notations of status detail, uh, the, the subtle things that people use to show other people where they stand. Um, in prose, it's, you can do this very economically. It's very easy to do it. Uh, you know, you can say that pair of, of, of loafers that that man is wearing, those, they cost $850. They're the latest thing from uh, uh, Bertinelli in uh, Milano. Um, in writing, it's very easy to do that. In film, you, you kind of get the, the broad, only the broad stroke. For example, in the movie The Godfather, a marvelous movie, uh, to show that a certain movie producer is decadent, uh, they put him into a house that would have intimidated the Borgias, you know, and, uh, and they have him sleeping under uh, salmon-colored uh, uh, satin sheets. Uh, you know, and that's decadent. Uh, and the movies, are, are, they're a little bit hogtied in that respect. Not, and they can't use point of view either. Movies have tried everything. Voiceover. There was one movie in which the camera was put on the shoulder of the main actor. I think it was uh, Ray Milland. You only saw the main character when he looked in the mirror. But none of these things work. Um, but, but I think if, if fiction writers do not engage um, the amazing life around them, uh, they can put themselves out of business. Um, <clears throat> I've got a few more, but let's take some questions from the audience. Um, microphones will be brought to you, so if you... Yeah, we'll take... Gentlemen in the fourth row there? Yeah, the microphone's coming over. Hi. Um, I was going to ask uh, why you changed from journalism to being a novelist, but it seems clear to me that you were always wanting to be a novelist. 
Uh, so I wondered why you uh, started out as a journalist. No, I like many, many people who work on uh, newspapers, uh, probably it's true to, to this very day, um, my idea was I was going to you know, do a little newspaper work, and then one day I was going to just quit the game and um, move into a shack somewhere and work for six months and produce some novel that would light up the sky. Um, that had been my intention, but the journalism itself uh, and this so-called new journalism became so exciting that I really lost the, um, the, the yearning to write a novel. I mean, I think the things that were done in, in nonfiction, at least in the United States uh, in that uh, period, we're now talking about the 1960s and the early 70s, um, were the most exciting literary, that, that became the most exciting literary movement in the, um, in, in the country. Uh, and I only turned to the novel as a, just to, to try to show that um, I could do anything in this, in this area if, uh, if I wanted to. Um, then I, when that, that novel seemed to go pretty well, I, it was all new to me. Writing a novel was something new to me. It was, um, and, well, to this day, I had written an awful lot of nonfiction. I had written ten, uh, ten books at that point, and I can't tell you how many hundreds of magazine uh, pieces, plus the newspaper work that I'd done. And fiction was new and, and intriguing. I was going to say, but if, if we'd gone into your head, like you talked about Leonard Bernstein's after Bonfire of the Vanities, You've had this huge success, which is a great thing, but you then had the problem of following it, and it was a problem, wasn't it? Oh, I was as infantile as any writer who ever uh, wrote when it came to that. And this idea that you, you've had one su big success, this is my first novel, uh, and then you feel like that somehow the next novel has got to have the whole world in it. It's got to be the biggest thing that ever happened. And it becomes, very in it becomes intimidating, and many, many writers have gone, have gone through that. And I was going all over the world to get material... I went to Japan to get material. There was going to be a huge television component in this book. Uh, there was going to be a huge art world component. I was following, I had the idea, I still think it's a good idea, a story about unsuccessful artists uh, in New York. You know, ten, literally tens of thousands of artists live in New York. They're all told at their art schools that um, first you have to go to New York and catch on with a gallery. Um, and once you do that, then you can go be an artist anywhere, but first you have to do that. And unfortunately, it's true. And so they all pour in, and so I said, what a great idea to follow unsuccessful artists and see what they're... And so I did that. Um, and it's great stuff, but it didn't fit into this book about Atlanta and plantations. Um, and I finally realized that I wasn't going to get the whole world put into this uh, book, and I eventually calmed down and said, you're just writing a book, you know, the, the world is really not watching. But we see, we see how much you were writing. This ambush at Fort Bragg released as an audio book was in fact part of A Man in Full at one point, wasn't it? Although it has no characters in common. The, the, uh, a Man in Full was going to start in a television studio in New York uh, with a man running one of these uh, Sting television shows. I don't know if they produced here or not, but in, the, in Increasingly the US, they are, yeah. It's where you've got, the, you've got hidden cameras and, uh, and the, the greatest line was in the show 60 Minutes when they were... They had the goods on some used car salesman and, um, with the hidden cameras. And then the, the, the guy from 60 Minutes pulls his curtain aside, and there's the camera. Uh, and he turns to the, the used car dealer, and he says, <clears throat> says, the good news is we're not the police. 
the bad news is we have six, we are 60 minutes. And uh, this kind of show was a... But something about those shows uh, kind of gets under your skin. In, in a way, the eavesdropping is worse than whatever these malefactors have done. Uh, and that was kind of the genesis. Oh, I wasn't thinking about so much about 60 minutes as a couple of the others. Um, and so that was going to be the beginning of the, of, of, uh, of the book. And I did a lot of work on that. And uh, I finally was able to use it in this way, as you say. Um, yes, over there. In your book, The Electric Kool-Aid, uh, um, you obviously travel a lot with Neil Cassidy. And uh, was he really as mad as he appeared in Jack Kerouac's uh, On the Road and, and subsequently his wife's? Uh, well, by the time that uh, I caught up with Neil Cassidy, um, who had really been the, the star, the, 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 the hero of On the Road, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, uh, he was about 40, 41 uh, years old. And he had become such a <clears throat> uh, character in the mythology of the Beat Generation uh, that he was respect uh, he was expected to constantly be on in some showman-like uh, fashion. Uh, and by now he was part of Ken Kesey's group, the Merry Pranksters, the one of the great hippie groups that existed. Um, and <clears throat> he was taking a lot of methadrine, uh, what's commonly known as speed. And he had a four-pound jackhammer in his, uh, that he, he, in his hand. He'd keep, all day long, he'd be flipping this jackhammer and always catching it uh, and, uh, out of the sledgehammer. I'm not, not a jackhammer. The sledgehammer. Uh, and, and talking a monologue about all, you know, nonstop monologue, as people who take speed will tend to, uh, uh, to do, because he felt as if he was always on stage. Uh, he, he had been built up... Uh, so much as a, as a character. Um, when, he would, when he would come down from the high, he would be a very courtly, depressed uh, uh, individual. Uh, but there was, nothing, there was really nothing in, in, in between. And one of the things he would do is that he would, uh, he would try to drive from point A to point B in a city without ever stopping. Uh, and this would sometimes would mean going through uh, gasoline station um, uh, tarmacs, uh, uh, going over people's lawns, uh, uh, going the wrong lane, risking head-on collisions, and so on. So he, yes, he did come as advertised. He was, uh, uh, he was about as uh, continually wild as anyone I've ever met. Tony Parsons, yeah. A lot of your great early journalism, like the Noonday Underground and the story about Muhammad Ali and Phil Spector, and you mentioned Neil Cassidy, a lot of that is very, very speedy. Um, did, you, did you ever use amphetamines for writing, or were you on a natural high? No, I... You have to run for president. You have to be <laughs> careful. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I took it, but I didn't swallow it. No, uh, <laughs> uh, No, I thought the job was to somehow approximate the, the wild things that were in, in prose, the wild things that were going on in the, in the 60s. It was a great um, challenge, but many people concluded that somehow I, uh, I did do all the things that the people I wrote about did. I, I wouldn't be here before you today, I think, if I'd, if I'd even attempted that. Any questions from you? Yes, there, yes.
Hi. Um, I very much associate you with your appearances on Johnny Carson. I'm Canadian, so you know, before I'd ever read any of your books, I'd seen you half a dozen times on Johnny Carson. What effect did that have on your career, and did you enjoy doing those sorts of things? I, I enjoyed them, but after your seventh uh, television show, this is a known physiological fact. The brain turns to jelly. It's, a, it's really not a good thing for you. Uh, it's, a, it's a very artificial uh, uh, existence. And I noticed that Johnny Carson himself, but perhaps as a uh, protective uh, device, um, became a different person during the commercial breaks. Said almost nothing. Um, wasn't interested in talking to anybody. Uh, and he would just wait for that red eye on the camera to come on again. And then suddenly he was... Uh, uh, it's probably the only way you can do it and keep your sanity, you know. Uh, um, the strangest thing that ever happened to me, though, on the and the Johnny Carson show, since you mentioned it. Um, I was on, coming on just after a, uh, they p- always put the writers toward the end of the show, um, when they've already got their audience, they figure. Uh, I came on after a, a young opera singer who was, had made quite a hit because she was so sexy. Um, and that night, for some reason I really can't remember, uh, Johnny Carson was giving every guest uh, I, one of these trick T-shirts that says um, "Mother was wrong" or, or something like that. Um, and so he, when he, th- this uh, opera singer was a very buxom uh, young lady. Uh, and the um, when he handed her the T-shirt, uh, uh, she just took it. During the commercial break, and studio audience is in there, um, she says, "You know, I'm going to put mine on." And so Johnny Carson goes, "Well, why don't you?" And, um, she uh, she took off her uh, her blouse. There was nothing underneath, and she put on the t-shirt. Now I can hear gales of laughter. I'm behind a curtain. I haven't. Uh, I, don't, I have no idea what is going on. It's the commercial break. Gales of laughter and cheering, and everyone's going berserk. So then I come out, uh, and uh, <laughs> and Johnny Carson asks me a perfectly uh, ordinary question to get the thing started. The audience just breaks in tremendous laughter. Well, that's because the opera singer has just crossed her legs. You know, and everything, every twitch, every movement her body made after that, uh, the audience just cracked up. And I finally realized that I was in the, in the, you know, in the midst of what was a disaster for me. Uh, 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 but anyway, Johnny Carson. Sure. Yes, in the middle of the third row. Sorry, we'll just, can, we just, can we just wait for the microphone? Thanks. Um, do you think New York's the only place to live like Woody Allen, and what effect does that have on your novels? <laughs> um, I do feel that for me, uh, New York remains the place to live. There are a lot of reasons why I shouldn't uh, live there. A lot of, most of them have to do with it the extremely heavy taxes that you pay for the privilege. Um, but I still enjoy it. I still think it's... Uh, uh, it, what New York has is a very poor quality of life, but a great parade of ambitious human beings. Uh, and when the, when the day comes that you're tired of being in the presence of ambitious human beings, it's really time to live New York, leave New York, because that's all it's got. Uh, and there's not just people who are in the, some sort of the celebrity tier... It's thousands of immigrants who, with tremendous ambition uh, who 
give New York City a lot of its uh, drive today. A great many are from Asia. Um, it remains, I think, an extremely exciting city. And I could certainly be uh, happily use it again as uh, uh, the... I started to say venue. That's one of those new terms that's coming to the language. <laughs> came from the Olympics. Uh, as the, uh, uh, the locale of the novel. It's interesting because after Bond for the Vanities, people who hadn't seen you on Johnny Carson or elsewhere, a lot of people around the world thought you were a New Yorker. And, but to some extent, A Man in Full is about coming out as a southerner, isn't it? Well, it is. I, I grew up in Richmond, uh, Virginia, um, and have many and very happy memories of the South. And, and it, it did make things a little bit easier in writing about the South. But Atlanta and and southwest Georgia are different from anything you're going to find in, in Virginia. Uh, Atlanta is a city unto itself. It's a, it is a, a southern city of ambition. Uh, and even in uh, Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell portrayed it that way. People living in Atlanta were considered rather raw, uh, bumptious, uh, rowdy, hustling people compared to people in it, Charleston or Savannah, or for that matter, Richmond, which were old, considered true old southern, uh, uh, old southern cities. Yeah, um, at the very towards the back, gentleman in the white shirt, up the back there. Yeah, if you could take this way for microphone. Uh, I was just wondering if I could spare you the embarrassment of asking you what you thought was the best thing you'd ever written, by asking you what you think is the worst thing you've ever got published. <laughs> well, I know it's the worst thing I ever wrote. I. Um, um, after the Candy Color Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby came out, uh, I learned for the first time that there was something called the Tom Wolf style. Um, up until that time, I th always thought I was fitting um, my words to the, the, the particular wild situation in the 1960s that I was writing about, whether it was customized cars or uh, these teenagers who were beginning to create a nightclub life in, uh, in places like the, the Wagon Wheel and these other... Um, uh, restaurants in New York uh, or, sto or stock car racing drivers, all sorts of things. And I had never thought of it as, a, as something, a style with my name on it because I always thought I was fitting the, the, uh, the, the mood of whatever I was writing about. Now I, I realized there was the Tom Wolfe style. And I had the idea, which was a perfectly good idea, of writing about... Um, middle-class Latino life in New York. Uh, but instead of going into it with a style that would fit the life that I was looking at, I tried to artificially put this, this Tom Wolfe style of these things I had written in, the, in my first book uh, onto that story. It was a disaster. It's so bad. I did six of these pieces. Uh, I would never let any of them near a, uh, a book uh, that I wrote. In, in so many ways, it's... Uh, it's terrible for a writer to think that he has a style that he must always use uh, or that he um, is, has the power to sum up a decade. Or any of these things are, become real traps. Uh, um, and you can always see when writers have decided that they should be writing for eternity. Uh, and the, everything begins to become abstract uh, and, and high-flown. Um, it's better to immerse yourself in um, precisely what you're writing about. You talked um, 
beginning about the test of the novel. Now, you've seen, you've clearly passed it in commercial t- terms and in critical terms mostly, but you've upset some American novelists of roughly your generation, John Updike, Norman Mailer. They've got very angry about it. They gave it bad reviews. They've been bad-mouthing you around the place. Well, they went to, Updike and Mailer went to enormous trouble uh, to shoot down uh, a man in full. And Mailer wrote 10 pages in the New York Review of Books, which is newspaper size publication. 10 pages. Uh, if you really want to knock something, you shouldn't write at that length. But anyway, uh, Updike wrote six pages in the New Yorker uh, magazine, and each did it on his own, because I, I doubt that they communicate that closely uh, together. Um, and I was enormously flattered, because they both had books out at the same time that I did. Uh, Updike had one called Beck is Back. Norman Mailer had one... I. I Honestly, cannot remember the title of it. It was the autobiography of Jesus Christ, as written by Norman Mailer. Um, these books sank without a bubble, um, and suddenly, everyone is paying attention to my book, including them. And and I so my response to them directly, I said, "Look, two old piles of bones like you, because I'm their age. I mean, I know what I'm talking about." I said, two old piles of bones like you." have no business rising up off your pallets and spending all that time and energy on a book review. Uh, you know, you haven't got but so much left in you. Uh, you've got to... And uh, whether they'll take this advice or not, I don't know. But, uh, but what was behind it, we assume, is that they thought they had the hierarchy sorted out and then you turned up late. Well, I, you know, I, th- I think at first there was just this... Uh, perhaps, as people would say to me, there was just this jealousy... I think what really set it up, detonated the whole thing was when my picture appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and it said, the white stuff is back. And, uh, and they even made the logo of Time in white letters with only a shadow underneath the... Uh, this, you know, this, this was great. Um, I think that set them off. But I think what was uh, underneath it is something much more interesting. At the bottom is something much more interesting. Um, I presented this novel, A Man in Full, as a confirmation of what I had done in um, uh, The Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, namely to confirm a theory of mine, which I had spelled out in two, two long essays, uh, about the importance of detailed realism and the importance of going back to the kind of things that uh, Dickens, Dostoevsky, uh, Zola, uh, Balzac, and others had done, which is this kind of detailed re- realism that, that tries to engage as much of life as it possibly can. You know, both Balzac and Zola uh, sought to, expre- to bring into their novels the entire life of France uh, at, their, at their time. Balzac called it the human comedy, uh, and uh, Zola called it the Rougon Marquois um, cycle. It was about, it was a, he had, this was the story of two families. Um, and if I was right about saying this is where the American novel must go, and here is my, what I am presenting as an ex- example of what I mean, uh, and I w- was somehow taken seriously and people began to say, yes, maybe he's right, uh, they were in a lot of trouble. Uh, and I think they just instinctively sprang to try to protect their own uh, uh, reputations. Um, I, mean, I, don't, I have, really have no idea... Um, how many people in England are interested in John Updike? I'm sure more are interested in Norman Mailer. 
But in the United States today, there's 274 million people. That's the population of my country. And there is not one person waiting for a new John Updike novel. Um, I was just checking we can let this run on longer so we will and the lady at the back in the red red ready orange blouse um, just wait for the microphone could you just give me a sense of how many more people want to ask questions just so we got yeah there and any further back yeah there okay Thank you. A simple question, I'm afraid. Um, do you have a computer, or are you a man of your age and a technophobe? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm, I'm a, a hopeless Luddite. I, uh, my wife gave me a computer in 1986, and uh, I gave it to my daughter, uh, and then she told me it was obsolete, which it was. <laughs> and, uh, and so far, I still use a manual typewriter. I, I, I have not even advanced to the electric. And the, uh, the manual typewriter, is, it's, this is hard slogging now because there are no more parts being made, no more typewriters being made. It's like owning a buggy. It really, it really, it really is. Uh, and my, the days are numbered. I've got to get with the program soon. <laughs> yes, over there, please. Mr. Wolf, I was wondering, how do you decide on the names of your titles of your books? I mean, the new one, Vampires at Bonfire. I mean, it's an extraordinary title, isn't it? Well, we did, we, we did have that. He did explain earlier where the title... A taxi driver? A taxi driver? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what, about, Lawrence, I think. What, what about your other ones, sir? Yeah. Well, the, the titles usually have been the dessert afterwards. Uh, man in Full, there were hundreds. Now, Man in Full, I, I did go through many, many uh, titles... At one time, it was going to be called The Mayflies. Uh, that began to make me itch. Um, besides, nobody seemed to know what Mayflies were. Um, and I was going to, one was going to be called um, uh, Buckhead... Wait a minute. Uh, Baker County's Buckhead Boy. Thank God no one let me get away with that one. Um, I must have gone through seven or eight, and I finally hit upon... Man in Full. I decided one a title that was a little bit calmer um, and a little bit more expressive of the central theme of the novel, which really is um, manhood and what manhood does to women who think they're uh, when they're in the in the way of manhood. Um, a Man in Full just got got closer to it. it. Came from an old folk song. James Brown. With the exception of the day the cheque arrives, at what point during the writing process are you happiest? <laughs> I've, never found the, I've never found the process particularly uh, pleasant. Um, but there are wonderful moments in which if you've struggled over a scene or something and you finally uh, have hit the chords that are are working, that you think are working, um, and you say to yourself, yes, that's, uh, or when you discover a, a plot element, as I did in A Man in Full, when I realized that the, the very complicated racial friction that exists, uh, or racial interrelationships that exist in Atlanta, Georgia, should be a central part of this uh, novel, uh, I, I somehow knew that this would work. But the, the ordinary process of writing, I've seldom 
found pleasant at all. And, uh, and I kind of distrust writers who say they've enjoyed, enjoyed doing it. That's some, something that we didn't cover, which is that you say there that, that race, you realize that would work. But it's also, as you've discovered from some reviewers, it's a risky subject. Some, some writers, white writers, won't go near it as a subject. Uh, the point has been raised with both Bonfire the Runners and Man in Full. Did you regard it as a, as a risky enterprise? Well, I was actually told by some friends that uh, I shouldn't get into that area again after having done it in Bonfire of the Vandies. But once you decide you're going to write about Atlanta, Georgia, uh, I don't see how you can uh, avoid it. It's so central to the life of that, of, of, of that city. I mean, here's a, a city which, within its city limits, is almost 75% black and, and a quarter white. Uh, around it are 16 counties with more than 3 million people, great majority of whom are white, but all working within Atl- within uh, uh, Atlanta. Uh, and so the you know America really is a democracy. And if you have the numbers and you have some organization, you can take power as uh, the as the uh, the black population has done in Atlanta. I can't think of another uh, large city in. I cannot think of a large city in Europe. I don't know that much about Europe. Uh, that has a mayor who is a different color from the predominant uh, uh, native stock of the, of the country. Uh, but it does... The uh, um, United States really is a democracy. And it, it happens, and when it, when it does, it becomes extremely interesting because, the, in this case, the, the, the white population has the, the vast preponderance of the money, and the, the, the black population has the power. Um, and in A Man in Full, very briefly, I told the story of a famous meeting in which a group of developers wanted to run a highway through meeting through South Atlanta. And there was a lot of opposition, which is, which is predominantly black, and there was 